1: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit IdeasRoadshow.com for more details. Are sign languages real languages? Well, not too long ago, people didn't used to think so. They unthinkingly believed that sign language was simply an elaborate form of gesture. But ever since the pioneering linguist Bill Stokey created his famous Dictionary of American Sign Language in the mid-1960s, people slowly but surely began to rethink their linguistic understanding. Nowadays, nobody questions that sign languages are bona fide languages, so that's a clear sign of progress. But where does that leave gesture exactly? And how exactly does it relate to language generation, both for sign languages and spoken languages? Well, that's exactly the question that UC San Diego linguist Carol Patton is interested in. So maybe at the beginning, right at the very beginning, we can talk about how we're doing this and some of the difficulties uh, that you had been mentioning earlier about right. the, your, your problems when you, even when you sit down to, to, to do an interview or to talk to somebody, your political issues, as it were.
2: Right. Right, every time I go into um, an interview or if I'm giving a talk or I, um, I do something spontaneously, I have to decide which language. So I think maybe um, in some situations if there's a lot of deaf people, I prefer to use American Sign Language. Right. So I would just sign like this
0: and allow Amala to speak for me. So I'll sign, and this is the most comfortable thing for me. I don't have to think about how am I pronouncing a particular word, how am I going to state certain things. Because I grew up with American Sign Language, and it's my first, it's my home language. And I'm very comfortable with it.
2: But if I'm in um, a different situation where maybe there aren't any deaf people there, then I prefer to just speak English um, without signing like I would with you when right. we first met. I should speak with you. And then you're probably going to need to caption this part. But this means that I'm not available if deaf people were watching the video or were watching the event. So I have to weigh, do I, um, I do I use a language I'm most comfortable with? But the voice is not me, it's somebody else. Hmm. So I think um, and, and I think another issue a lot of people have the idea of you know sign language, or then you you must use it because you can speak English, but that's not the case. So I would like you know I'd like to sort of push back and forth and sort of hear what I sound like when I'm speaking m- myself, and then hear what I sound like if somebody else did uh, speaking for me. Now, Molly's worked with me for 12 years. So she knows what words I like to use. She knows what sentences. So it, this is the closest, but it, it has the feeling of a different voice, a different person talking while I'm signing. So um, I'm, I'm just going to switch between them. Perfect. And then we'll decide on the topic maybe if a topic might be maybe more personal, then I'd like to use American Sign Language for that. And then if I get if we're talking about technical things, you know, if I wanna talk about spoken language and sign language, maybe I'll switch to English. But I, I think the instructive thing is sometimes um, there's a person using American Sign Language and, and the person doesn't speak. So you think uh, sometimes you have a great interpreter like Mala, sometimes you don't have a very good one. So you think, wow, did this person really sound like that? You have to, you have to really think, this is um, one step removed. So I, I want to illustrate how the same person can sound different or sound just slightly a little bit different depending on what medium they're, they're speaking in. And I, and I think I want to show that um, I, I grew up using American Sign Language. Both of my parents are signers. I have an older deaf brother, and my parents are deaf. The so sign language to me was completely natural. I used it, um, my, I've used it my entire life. So for me, switching between languages is, is a natural thing to do. And, and they both feel like they're me, but they're different sides of me. So you'll see when when I start signing, I might express myself a little differently than I do if I'm I'm using English.
1: Perfect. I, I want to talk a little more about this idea of different sides of you because uh, I've I've heard that uh, with many people with with who speak two languages or who have command of two or more languages, that they they feel like they're somewhat different people um, with with both of those. But before I do that, and before I go into your personal background, um, I want to ask a question about what you just said Uh, with respect to Mala. So, you talk about how Mala's an excellent interpreter, and how at the same time you've been working with her for 12 years. Has that changed when you first started working with her? Was there this sense of, of a connection with her that you might not have with other people? Has she changed very much in those 12 years, or did it take did it take two years or three years before you really felt that you were on the same wavelength?
2: You know honestly, I can't remember. I, um, I, I began working with Marla because she, she's one of the best she one of the best interpreters I know. She's um, highly qualified, had very good training. I think what happened in this relationship of working with an interpreter when uh, in a job like this is um, is she gets to know when I when I when I sign when I'm using spoken English? When do I talk with the person one on one? When do I use an interpreter? There should we've become accustomed to different situations that we've been in to know what to do and at what time. But um, she's also a linguist by training. No. Yeah. So she knows a lot of my vocabulary if I'm signing. If I have to give a large keynote talk, I prefer to sign if I can. Um, it's should I don't have to think about it. I am um, i feel I can be more spontaneous. If I'm speaking English, I feel I'm more guarded. Um, it, it, it feels like uh, I, I need to think, you know, what's the next word? Maybe not subconsciously, but it feels more um I, I feel more protective if i'm i'm doing it in, in english so i feel like i'm a little bit looser a little bit um more spontaneous if i'm signing so mala knows she's turned all of my jokes so she knows <laughs> how to tell all of them <laughs> 10 times over so she knows how to she knows the joke. so that she can time it um exactly almost all of, um almost all the time so so that comfort, you walk into a situation where people don't know anything about, signers, don't know anything about me, and then having the confidence of working with an interpreter I know very well—it is, is one less thing to worry about.
1: So, what happens when you want to come up with a new joke?
2: Why? Oh, maybe you should ask Marvel. I freak out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, Mala likes to be thoroughly prepared. So if I have notes, she wants to read them in advance. Um, But sometimes like this, you know, we don't have notes, so we're, um, yeah, we're flying a little blind here.
1: So you are out of your comfort zone now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's let's begin uh, at the beginning. At your beginning, and you mentioned having deaf parents and a deaf older brother and my understanding is that you did not go into um, uh, an english speaking environment until grade three or something like that is th- is that right so so I want you to tell me um, not only how that was for you and the impact that it that it has had, but I also want to get some understanding of what happened why did your parents do that uh, at that particular time? What what were their motivations, and were they pleased by the result as well?
2: Right, my parents are both academic. They're, um, they were retired, they were both on the faculty at Gallaudet University. So my, um, they both graduated from Gallaudet, um, became professors. My father um, was an athlete, so he became a professor of physical education, and my mother, English, English literature. So I grew up in, in a home um, talking about ideas, talking about teaching, talking about university. So now that I'm working in one, it should feels like um, an extension of, of my childhood. But my parents' life was very different from mine. They both went to boarding schools for deaf children, which was the norm. My dad um, graduated from Gallaudet in 1945, um, my mother in 1947. They both went to um, schools where they they slept, they, they lived there um, year round, they came home only on holidays. So for them, they, they grew up in a segregated, Um, environment, deaf people went to special schools, and hearing people went to what were called public schools. Now I was born at a time when people were starting to think about um, inclusion. They didn't call it that. Um, They were thinking about mainstreaming as the philosophy, but that word hadn't yet appeared. Um, I was born hard of hearing, so I um, But I went to a deaf school um, at Gallaudet on the campus, in elementary school. And when I was was about first and second grade, one of the school administrators approached my parents and said, you know, Carol um, is learning English quite well. She's hard of hearing. Have you thought about having her go to public school? Now we would say, you know, you're being mainstream. But at the time, it really meant going without an interpreter. Going alone, but this case, yeah, this case I went to a school with a very small um, experimental program with a few other deaf, deaf children. It was an hour by bus from my home hour: An hour um, because they were, they were bringing deaf children together from, from all through the, the I'm not even sure it was in Maryland. Um, I think it was, I'm not even sure what the school district. Um, so I remember leaving, you know, the familiar environment of my my school on the same campus where my parents taught, to travel for an hour to a public school, um, the class with maybe six to eight children, to a class of 30 children, it really felt like this huge transition.
1: Huh.
2: Um, I went for a year, and then at the end they said, you know, Carol seems to be doing fine without an interpreter. She can go to her local public school. So I've been for most of my life, until um, until my first year of college, I never had an interpreter. I was the only deaf child in my school. Wow. So it felt like being educated abroad. I would go to school, and then I'd come home. And I'd use time language at home, used it with my parents. I'd talk about, um, you know, what it was like. But my parents, they, it's, they, there was a distance. You know, my parents grew up in a school with all deaf children. I grew up um, in a school with just, just yep. being the only one. So my parents, I think, um, felt that distance. I felt it. So it felt like something would be hard to explain, that I had to live it myself. So that's what I've done. So I've, I've, I think I've, I'm i very acutely aware of what it takes to communicate, how cultures are different, um, uh, how to reach people. That's something that I've had to do.
1: Sure. And when you were going through this long period of, Studying abroad, from uh, from from primary school all the way up through college, did you have positive experiences? Well, did were there other people who were reaching out and wanted to learn American Sign Language, wanted to make a, an effort to get out of their comfort zone to be able to to have better contact with you? Be they other students or, or teachers or, or or anything? Did you have those sorts of experiences, or was it all you having to adjust to the prevailing um, societal norms or, 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 or environment?
2: You know, uh, a lot changed between third grade and um, beginning to teach you at UCSD. A lot of ideas changed about sign language. Um, American Sign Language uh, wasn't called American Sign Language, really. Um, my father never had a name for sign language when he was growing up. Mm. He should call it sign language. He should call it signing. And that's what I called it. So I think not until about 1965 was there the idea that sign language is a different, in different parts of the world. People people should naturally think it's universal. So um, William talking. Uh, first identified what he called the American Sign Language. And it became American Sign Language, all capitalized. It became um, uh, the name for the language, but it was not, we didn't name it, we should didn't. You know, we, it, it was what we did. So when I was growing up, I think when I went to uh, public school, I had friends who learned finger spell, but not really the sign. Um, because that's not what hearing people do. Sign language is for people who don't speak. It's for people who need it, who have no other alternative. But um, since the, since, um we call him Bill, Bill Stokey's initial publication and then people started to think, wait, we need to take another look at this. And ideas about language changed, and it became, it became a subject of study which I think that this day amazes my parents, that so many people out there are interested in what we do. And in sign language, I mean, sign language was for the poor deaf people, but now there are all these people learning it. So I, um, so my friends of mine that have deaf children that go to public school now, they find much more Receptive um, attitude about about sign language. My daughter is hearing, so you know she'll say sort of um, in passing. Oh yeah, my parents are deaf. I grew up signing, and they go awesome. But um, you know, she had a very different reaction than I did. Um, it, it wasn't something you had, but it wasn't something you expected people to be interested in, or expected people to want to learn.
1: Right. I, I wanted to ask a question about um, the development of sign language. You mentioned, is it Bill Stokey? Is that is that uh, the, the gentleman's name? Who who made it a formal Why? language, formal discipline. When When this happened, and when all of a sudden it went from signing to the American Sign Language. Did that change the, the actual language in any way? Was there a sense of codification or this is now part of American Sign Language and, and that's not, was it, or was it just a seamless transition from what you were normally doing to just being called something a little bit more official?
2: It wasn't sudden. Um, it took a period of time. I know this because I was very fortunate um, I started. Um, I, I transferred to Georgetown University at the sophomore. I started out at Cal State University Northridge because they had interpreters, and I, I wanted interpreters. I had never had them, but I also wanted to do linguistics in Georgetown with um, the top place for an undergraduate degree. So I transferred to Georgetown after one year. And I also wanted to work with Bill Stoke. He had a lab at Gallaudet University. So I um I approached him. I said, I want to work in your lab. This is what I want to do. And thank God, he, he said, you're just a sophomore. Um, he said, sure, I know your parents. I teach you in the same department as your mother. You can come and work with me. So I, I was there almost at the beginning, um, 1970 was only about nine years after Bill had, had published his um, Dictionary of American Sign Language. But um, people thought he was crazy. They thought it was a, a vanity project. They thought, why did you, you do this? Uh, why did you make a dictionary that had no pictures of signs in it? He had, he had used, he had developed the code for the handshake, the movement. He wanted a, a phonological, phonetic analysis of what, of how the movement came to mean things.
1: Because he was treating it as a, as a real language.
2: He was, he was. But deaf people, hearing people, they thought it was a fool's um, project, that he was doing this because it was just a little bit, a little bit crazy. And what he was, he was just his own person. He was an independent thinker. He didn't count. Uh, I remember, I think, my first first or second year, I was at Georgetown. I would go back and forth between Gallaudet and Georgetown so I could work with Bell. I had the idea of, of having a reception so people could come to our lab and see what we were doing because people were talking about, what are they doing up there? on the third floor, there, they're videotaping, they're working, there is, you know, all these graduate students and... People, people so I thought, up. why not have a reception? So we built it great, and we ordered the food, and we ordered a little wine, he, he had class, he was very classy about that kind of thing, and hardly anybody showed up. So we were there with, with wine and food, and nobody came. Now he revealed as, as one of the most original thinkers in our field and actually people you will see almost any kind of publication that talked about the history of ideas about sign language will cite him. So um, many, many years later, and this was shortly before he passed away, we had a conference and invited him to sit there so we would all tell them. And I told them, you remember the reception we had (laughs) and nobody came. (laughs) Look at this room, it's filled with 300 people. All these people coming to a conference just for you. So it wasn't all of a sudden. It really took a change of ideas, not just about sign language, but about language. Um, It was, um, it's just the idea that, that language, um, it it has uh, it uh, it has structure, it has uh, property, and these ideas are still changing. And that that's the work that I've been doing for the last decade or so with my colleagues, looking at new sign languages in other parts of the world, not here in the U.S. but elsewhere.
1: I I just. Uh Heard something on the other side of the door. Um, So let's build on that and describe to me some aspects of the differences between sign languages. You said that it's a popular misconception that there's only one sign language. Um, So tell me about the different sign languages that exist today and a a little bit of the history. How did that come to pass, um, I can imagine that it, it, it might have just been a natural process as any language. You, you have dialects and you have distinctions based upon the fact that groups of people are out of contact with other groups of people and they develop their own ways of, of communicating. Or, or is it somehow different from that? So maybe if you could just give me a little history as to uh, how those differences developed.
0: Maybe this is a good time to use American Sign Language. Perfect. We will, uh, you'll see for yourself. Okay. Well, American Sign Language is used in the United States and English-speaking parts of Canada. It is also becoming a major world language. Other parts where they will use um, it for national and regional sign languages, and sometimes in very small sign languages, and I'll talk about that in a moment but many different sign languages are around the world. We're not exactly sure how many there are. We're starting to find more and more and discover new ones. If you go online, there's a website, a database of uh, national or natural sign languages called ethnolog.com. There you will see a myriad of sign languages and they're adding more all the time. They have uh, sign languages in Brazil in uh, Ghana, in Japan, China, Korea. I'm sure there are different sign languages in the north, north and south parts of Korea. But people think it's universal because it's gestural. And we think of gesture as universal, therefore sign language must be. But in actuality, when you have a culture, or community of people who are together and share a particular language, American sign language Uh, dates back to, we're really not sure. We know that often people pinpoint uh, to a particular time in history in 1817 when the first school for the deaf was established. But, and we do have records of sign language communities and sign language people, users prior uh, 18th century, 17th century, so we don't know exactly the date and we can't pinpoint the date when sign language began But schools are often a good indicator because people live in a particular place and all of the children come together and see because they never had contact before when they're together, they begin to develop a a common standard, if you will, conventionalized sign language or signing behavior that is developed from that group. So if you go to, for example, Europe, You'll have French Sign Language, German Sign Language, Italian Sign Language. Each place and each different nation will have their own sign language.
1: So help me out here, because I need to know a little bit more of the linguistic structure. Um, The fact that that everyone uh, or or different regions have different sign languages does not actually surprise me. Um, But what I don't know anything about one of the many things I don't know anything about, is um, a, a tie-in, a structural tie-in to these languages. So for example, uh, obviously uh, you, can, you can look at different languages and say English is closer, it's a Germanic, Anglo-Germanic language, and so it's linked somehow to this language. And so, and, and you would look at some Asian languages and, and, and trace them um, and talk about these classifications, Indo-European, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so I'm thinking that maybe there's something similar with with sign language uh, uh, as well. And and, and by a concrete example, I'm thinking when you go to France or if you go to Brazil, can you get a little bit of what these people uh, uh, are saying when they're signing? Does it depend on where you go? What are the commonalities? That sort of picture.
0: Very, very good question. You have to remember that I've been talking about Bill Stokey for well what his, uh, what he did, you know in 1965. he, as I mentioned, public di- published a dictionary in American Sign Language on linguistic principles. meaning the idea of dividing a sign into multiple parts, not looking at how it looks or what he seemed to uh, be like the sign for drink seems to be, Uh, Someone holding a glass, bringing it to your mouth, that's an ASL sign for drink. Other parts of the world may have this sign for drink, or this one. Maybe different parts, but what Bill wanted to do was try to point out and and transcribe what the handshape was. So you had a code for this handshape, C, and then you have the movement behavior, like uh, this is another... uh, C handshape that we can use for another sign and we have another one like this these are sign for church so what's the difference between church uh, drink and uh, very smart is the last one they have the same concept of the handshape but that's the only commonality so he looked throughout the language and found the different parameters and tried to describe it so he found that For example, in English, the th in other places doesn't have any common uh, meaning. So you have there, you have wither, you have path. The th is the same, but the function is different. So he found the different parameters throughout the language and analyzed where a sign was produced. So you have the chin, you could do here for drink, or you could do smart here. And you can move it to different places, which changes the meaning. And what type of movement? So the drink goes up and the other one stays on the forehead. Church goes up and down, has a bounce. So all of those he notated and coded and put them into a corpus. Not all signs, because a dictionary wasn't big enough for that, but a good sub, uh, subset of the signs. And that seemed you know, to be a good idea. When he did that in 1965, people thought, why would you do something like that? What's the point of getting a dictionary? And now we understand. The point is that humans build structure. They create words, sentences, clauses, phrases, very complex entities and utterances, so at least 200 years old, American Sign Language, you, you see that it has uh, history. And we refer to American Sign Language as very young. Uh, but back to your question. So how long have we been talking and analyzing sign language in this way? I, I'm guessing about 60 years, not that long. Spoken languages have been debated, analyzed, talking about historical relationships with others, Uh, spoken languages for so many more years. History uh, dictates that English has a very long and rich history and sign language isn't quite there. We don't yet have a map, so to speak, of how languages are related with sign language. First, we need to figure out what the geography of deaf people is. Where have they lived? When do people sign? Is it only deaf people who sign or do hearing people sign? All of these questions we've never asked before or we've never been interested in them and we didn't need to know them before and now they become interesting and necessary and we're ready to ask the exact kind of questions that you did.
1: So tell me anecdotally um, how it feels. I want to explore this a little bit. What I mean by anecdotally, obviously, is I want to talk about your experiences as opposed to a a general theoretical framework. Um, You said something...
2: Before you go on, what did it feel like to hear me speaking English and then um, rapidly switch? It's fine. Did it feel disembodied?
1: No, it, feel, it feels, a, it, for me, it feels a little different. At the very beginning, I felt that, um, uh, because the voice was coming there, Why? I felt the, 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 the urge to turn this way. And then I told myself very quickly, that's stupid, so <laughs> no, i didn't i i didn't I, I didn't do it it felt a little weird, but it, it's it's fine it's actually it's very interesting
2: does it sound like me
1: um, that it, it sound it's oh, okay i don't know i don't know you, but it sounded uh the sense that i had and maybe that's because you told me in advance, but the sense that i had was that you you had no hesitation whatsoever. And maybe that's just because, uh, because of what you told me before. But it, it, it felt like, y- it, it seemed to feel like, y- like you felt that it was, it was somehow more natural, that you were a little bit more natural. That, but maybe I'm just projecting what you had told me before. I don't know. Because you seem natural in English too. So, But it, it, did, it, did, it did seem to be somewhat lack of inhibition, a little bit, tiny bit.
2: I wanted, I think I want to convey that I'm essentially the same person, but I'm using two different, um, what we call two different modalities. And that's really what's interesting about sign language work. If you are using the visual modality, is the language different somehow, Mm. structurally, expressively, expressively, yes. But is there something different about language if, if it's expressed in this medium or expressed in speech?
1: But he, here's, here's my, my question slash problem. I think there are two issues. Uh, so there's what is being conveyed, and there's the analysis of the semantic content, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's also the idea of not only how it makes you feel, but what sorts of things you you talk about and what your thinking patterns are. So I'll speak from my personal experience, which is a lot easier for me to do than to speak from yours. Um, so I uh, I spent a lot of time in France. My French is not as good as my English, uh, but it's pretty good. And I feel when I'm speaking French, a little different. I feel personally that I'm a little bit of a different person, I don't want to sound, you know, Drastic. I don't feel like I'm you know, the bleach blonde woman or something like that. But I, 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 do feel that I'm a, I'm a different person, and I have somewhat different thoughts and somewhat different thought patterns. And I've talked to many people who have similar experiences, and they, and they feel this way as, as well. Um, and part of that is, is because of the fact that I think the structure of the language just imposes certain. Thought patterns on you. I don't know how to describe it. You're the you're the linguist, but anecdotally, my own experiences are such that I, I do have somewhat different thoughts um, when I'm in that environment, whether it's cultural or linguistic or combinations thereof. So I can imagine that it might be the same uh, for you and for other people who are bilingual in terms of uh, uh, sign language, American Sign Language, or otherwise, and and uh, and another language like English
2: absolutely um, this, this is well well documented that languages are worldviews. they are um, their way of configuring the world their way of thinking about the world and and the language you use provides you um, a vehicle for that relationship with the world so when you change languages you change your relationship slightly and I feel I feel that I I um, not just in in how I convey ideas. Um, So absolutely, that's it. I think with sign language, we're asking a slightly different question. We're asking, are there affordances? Are there things that you can do if you're in the visual modality that you can't do if you're speaking? Or
1: vice versa, con-
2: right? Or other things in, uh, that you can do and you're speaking that you can't do in, um, in sign language. Uh, we've had a hard time getting to that question because at first we needed, like, like Bill, Bill Stokey, we needed to establish wait you know, we're not talking about something that's sort of a language. We're talking about something that is one. So how do we in 1970 and 1980s, how do we demonstrate that it is a language? So a lot of us went to the grammatical properties of a language. We wanted to show that we had words, we had a phonology, we had we had something like phonemes, but not exactly like phonemes. So if you have something like there and you have um uh, weather and then you have path, the phoneme puts up. Is it the beginning, the middle, or the end of a word? It's just about the sequencing. In sign language, we don't quite have the same kind of sequencing arrangement, but we do have parts. That was that was the brilliant discovery that uh, the bill made was to talk about what these parts were and how they were arranged. There's some sequence, but mostly the parts happen at the same time. Then we wanted to show there were sentences, so my PhD thesis was, how do we know we have the idea of a subject? Like the subject of a clause, or a direct object, or indirect object, how would you make an argument for that in a different modality? So That was the whole thing. That I talked about verb agreement, I talked about different types of verbs, and different properties of verbs. And that was 1983. Now is, 2014, and the world the world of ideas about language has shifted. When I started, we, we wanted to keep a distance from gesture, because people would say, oh, it's universal. It's the same thing. We would say, no, 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 it's not, it's, it's, it's different. Um, gesture is one gesture for an idea, like, you know, good job, um, it's working, um, uh, what else can you say? You this force, you know, see you later, everything's good, I'm, I'm fine, you can leave, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. But time Anguish was saying, everything's fine, I'll see you later, you have a lot more specificity. You have, you have words that you, you combine and recombine. So, you know, we needed that distance from gesture because a lot of that work was really looking at, Code speech gesture, which is what I'm doing now when I'm speaking, I'm not signing. Um, the gesture follows the rhythm of speaking. Sometimes you can use it to refer to the size of something, something being small, about this size or that size. The so coast speech gesture, um, it's it very much linked to, to what you're speaking. So there were lots of ways that gesture seemed so different from sign language and we wanted to emphasize that difference. Now we, 60 years later, we've, we've proven all we can, you know, we've, we've made our point. Now I think what I'm doing and what some of my colleagues are doing is going back to Jeshu and thinking about how do you, how, how the language is coming to being. And this is the work that my research group has been doing for the last 12 years. Myself with Mark Aronoff, from Stony Book University of Rietmere and Wendy Sandler from University of Haifa. We um, we began working in a Bedouin village in southern Israel. And this is a, a and this is actually a situation that nobody actually realized until now we're realizing this happens all over the world you have a community that is closed for some reason, maybe it's geographically distant, maybe um, it's ethnicity, maybe it's an island. Some way that they're kept separate from um, schools, from national sign languages. And if you have a mix of deaf and hearing people, they spontaneously will begin to create a new sign language from gesture. In the first generation, it really starts starts to take on properties that are distinctly different from Coast to It's different from Panama. It's a little bit more than Panama. Then you have a second generation, it really starts to take shape. By the third generation, it really starts to look like a lot of other sign languages in the world. So in a span of about 80, 75 to 80 years, you can build, a new sign language out of gesture, um, and it it has all the all the indications that we recognize to be true of sign languages that are
1: Masholno. And do you have enough data for this? So you talk about these Bedouins. I can imagine that's an interesting case. Do you have? Uh, 20 examples, 30 examples, we Do, do you, that, that you can start making these generalizations. There's
2: now a community of researchers that have worked in Bali, they've worked in Ghana, they've worked in Mali, they've worked in several places in Mexico. Um, and last summer, a group of us working with researchers at Tufts University uh, went to a village in southern Turkey. The community was smaller there. But we, we saw the same thing. You, know, you want to go someplace by the third, fourth, and fifth generation. You really can't. You, you, you're not able to see the beginning in the oldest people that you have and the, the latest in the youngest children that you have in the community. Now, the thing about a lot of these communities is not just deaf people who are signing, but young people.
1: Yes, that was Their
2: siblings, um, their relatives, their neighbors, their cousin, you know, there's just a lot of them they'll say, Why are you here? You know, this is, you came all this way to see us do this. This is naturally breathing. We should wanted to communicate. So what we're seeing is both the the um, the natural ability to begin to begin building a language anytime, anywhere, given a certain set of of circumstances. You can't really see that with spoken language. Because it's so, um, it it would be, well, you can see it with pigeons, where people meet each other, they don't speak the same spoken language, so they come up with something like a Hawaiian pigeon, is actually quite old. Um, Or, uh, Haitian Creole, Jamaican Creole, Belizean Creole. A lot of these were were languages created out of, of African languages that were brought by slaves brought to these plantations, and then the European languages that were spoken: French, German, English, Dutch, and then you create this sort of new um uh creation that it. It's not Dutch, and it's not um, one of the sub African languages that was brought there, but something new. But it started from two. It started from other languages that already existed. But with sign languages, you can you can you can watch gesture coming together, making words and sentences. So that's that's really our project. That's been my project.
1: So this is is fascinating. Um, and I have a follow-up question which may be unrelated to this, but I've heard of something called this the the motor theory of language or this this idea as to how language developed. Um, does your work have any implications or or if I were to ask you to speculate, make some bold thesis, would you say that that these ideas of the evolution of Uh, sign language through gestures into a more fully blown developed sign language has any tie-in or any ramifications to this idea of the motor theory of language or not?
0: That's a great connection to what I'm doing. I'm going to switch back to signing because now I want to talk about that specifically. The idea about the relationship between motor aspects of the body and language itself, you're right, has been around for a long time. But recently, people have begun to think about a similar concept called embodiment, which is our way of talking, our way of signing, our way of behaving, interacting. And it comes from how we interact with the world around us. So, for example, if you think of something like uh, the foot of the mountains, the head of the class, Mm. uh, the... What's another example? Um, There are a lot of ways that we use the body or parts of the body to kind of set uh, the analog to something in the world. And so in sign language, that's much more possible Because you can show with the sign, it seems pretty clear. If I'm signing something like drink or eat, naturally it involves the mouth. It wouldn't be drinking on my arm or eating on my arm. It would be drinking to the mouth or eating. So something seems seems funny, yes. But uh, sign language, you have ways to think about embodiment in uh, new ways. And some people on this campus are doing very interesting work on embodiment. I'm gonna ask her to spell the name again. <laughs> I've only heard the name, that's fine. Um, ben Bergen is uh, doing the type of ideas about exploring the relationship between people thinking, people speaking, and uh, anticipation of how the body will move. So people like Ben and others are trying to think of language as embodied.
1: All all language.
0: All language, all spoken language. With spoken language, you can really discover that if you look deep enough in places that people have never explored before, you can find examples like the foot of the mountain, the head of a class, um, the shoulders, on the shoulders of giants. Some things like that where you have the feeling of standing on someone Uh, to give images of the body as you build meaning. With sign language, we draw on that. We draw a lot of things on how the body interacts with the world around us. So another example, I've started to work with the ideas about signs for tools in uh, sign language. They tend to show what you do with the tool. So we have hammer. We have um, toothbrush, saw, uh, broom, rake, etc. So I thought, oh, that seems very natural. But it also seems that the kind of sign where you show the movement, there are things that are man made. But if you're talking about fruits and vegetables, signs tend to change a little bit, they show the shape of the object like uh, best example, well, uh, sometimes how humans interact with the object. So watermelon, because you thump it, the watermelon, orange, apple, banana, you show more about the shape of the thing that you're interacting with. But with tools, you show how you hold it. Uh, what the body is uh, interfacing with the world. So you have a separation between things that are man made and things that are not uh, from the natural world, not of the body. So you have banana, you have watermelon. This is the watermelon, and I'm thumping on it to do something with it. But then you have toothbrush or hammer, saw, etc. And they are more action based. So we've started to analyze those things, and people are beginning to think about those things in classifications in spoken languages as well.
1: As, as you were talking, it made me think of uh, a couple of things. There's somebody I spoke to some time ago who's a, a neuroscientist, and he does fascinating work with, um, uh, with monkeys, and uh, we could talk about that another time. But what, what's interesting is his thesis is that the, the human body... Or, or rather the human brain um, uh, somehow is, is programmed or has a disposition to take over tools. So this notion of a tennis player whose racket is a part of his arm, to some extent neurologically that actually happens. And, and this seems connected to this idea of using tools, incorporating tools in the sense of embodiment as you're saying.
2: Right, to so come back to what I said before, that the modality give you certain types of affordances. So this is a sign for tennis. Yeah. So um, basketball, tennis, um, often a sign for sport is, is the, um, it, it's the predominant action of that particular sport. So what we've done is we've gone around to different cultures and asked Jesuits um, who don't know signing. And of different unrelated sign languages around the world to look at pictures. Hmm. So we find um, what's interesting about about the idea of, of take a mop. In ASL, the sign for mop is something like this. Hmm. But in in a Bedouin culture, you don't you don't push it; right. you slide <laughs> it. So it. But. Sometimes I do this with the mom. And sometimes they do this with the mom. But so you understand embodiment is not my personal experience with it. It's my cultural, it's cultural iconography of that of that particular meaning. So there that's why sign languages are not universal. You you have different bodily experiences around the world. And the the expressive potential of the language changes. So you have, you have some signs that don't look anything alike, but then you look at them and you think, oh, of course. So uh, a favorite um, example that my colleague, John Havland, who's an anthropologist here at UCSD likes to do, is to ask people, and he works with a, a, a very new sign language that's only one generation deep in Mexico. It's in one family. So he's looking at the very beginning when we began working with veterans. The first generation had already um, passed away, so we were working with the second and the third. So he will go, he will He will ask the audience, um, if you were to come up with a gesture for chicken, what would it be? So what's your, if you were to gesture chicken?
1: Oh, I hate these tests. Um, uh, chicken. Chicken. Uh what does a chicken do? Maybe an egg. Maybe, uh, no, eggs, no good. Something coming out of an, I, I, I. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, okay, so you, sure, some people would do an egg, okay. I, I,
1: I don't, I'm, I.
2: Imagine yourself in a marketplace and you're trying right. to buy
1: a chicken. See, I never go to markets. This is part of my Okay, problem. all right, fine.
2: <laughs> okay, you're off the hook here. But a lot of people would do something like this. Right. Or they might do this. Right. Or they might do this. But in this, First-generation family sign language, the sign for chicken is... Ooh. Because that's what humans do with chickens.
1: Some humans, Some not, not, not all.
2: Some <laughs> humans, that's right. Um, well, that's embodiment. Um, but why don't we have this sign here? You might have something to do about our taboo for talking about how you prepare, you know, how you prepare food for consumption. Right. So this is why it's not universal. But it is based on gesture, it is based on, but it becomes, uh, the, what, what, what my group is, it, it, we're looking at the co-immersion of meaning and structure from um from its People trying to communicate and then people want to communicate efficiently. So the language has to become faster. How did it become faster? How did it become as fast as American Sign Language? It's so fast that I'm sure you couldn't recognize the individual signs. Maybe you could see one here, one there, but it's very it's very efficient. It's not if you look at gesture, it's not. It's very very laborious to do gesture after gesture, so we're very clear about what's different between gesture and sign language. Now, we want to we think about how, how do you make a language? If we can figure out how you make one, then we know exactly what its properties are.
1: Is American Sign Language becoming more efficient? Is it, uh, is it evolving? If if we were to have this conversation 20 years from now, would you be able to uh, point to some things, do you think? Obviously, I'm not asking for an ironclad answer because I'm asking about a conversation we might have 20 years from now, but uh, is there a sense based upon what's happened before that, that it will have changed in a way that renders it more efficient?
2: Um, languages don't exist in a vacuum. Sure. They stick in real life. So just as languages are changing. They're also dropping, dropping off things. A lot of things some, some things become more frequent, other things become much less, and they disappear. So whom how long will whom continue to be used? It is you're getting to a point where it feels hypercorrect if you use it. So that's just just a very clear example, but there are suffixes that we used to use a lot of, but no longer do. So you can look at at, at all languages, they're constantly in a state of evolution and they're also devolving. Mm -hmm. um, um, People migrate, uh, people from, from southern Sudan, because of war, Flee! They're fleeing, so they leave Sudan and they move to other parts of the world, and then they lose the ability to speak the language that they spoke in Southern Sudan because they're not there anymore. Mm. So the language begins to drop. They begin to drop certain features because they're not surrounded by by speakers of the language. Um, So so things like war. genocide um sometimes um modernity languages young people stop speaking languages because they're kind of not hip or cool anymore and they drop them The so languages die and as well as um as, as, as come to life
1: so have you noticed american sign language evolving in your lifetime are there phrases Are there are there are there expressions uh, that were prevalent when you were younger that are no longer the case now?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, um, my parents use a different language than, than I do, than younger deaf people, younger than me. You can, you can see it. And, you know, the funny thing is, is, when I meet a hearing child of deaf parents, who grew up in a family using sign language, but say they, they learned spoken English as well. And then they they didn't interact with deaf people. They went off to college. They were not part of the deaf community. They go they go off to college. And some of them they they take classes with me. They come up to me and they say, I don't sign very well. But I, I have deaf parents and I, I grew up signing so I should wanted to introduce myself. And if they come to my office hours, and they'll come, and they—they're eighteen years old, but they look like they're fifty. <laughs> <laughs> the language is frozen.
1: <laughs> Interesting.
2: In their parent generation, and it, it and, and it, it it's so remarkable. It, it it it's like I find I I, I oh my dad does that. Or um, or I know people who do that. Can you give me an example? See it right away. You could see it how this. It's like somebody who's left. Oh well. um, It's in the movement. It's it's a very subtle thing. Why my other interpreter has deaf parents? That's right. This is um, the sign for fast. She, She. We were somewhere working. And I saw her do this sign for fast, fast. It's just a difference in handshake. But this is older, and this is newer. Mm. So I said, you sign like your parents. she (laughs) said, I know it, I know it. (laughs) And that's the thing that I like about working with, sometimes working with coders, is they're sort of a a flash from the past. There'll be a small, a small thing. It's just a substitution of a handshake. But you get this feeling of um of age um uh, something that feels rich and deep. just just buy something small like
1: that interesting i want to get to this question of culture as well and the interplay between language and culture so i was thinking about this um recently um one i'm going to generalize so i'm going to say that right from the beginning that uh obviously i'm not talking about all people of, of these cultures Nonetheless, I think one can generalize uh, to the extent that you can talk about the English—that is, the English from England—sense uh, of humor, for example, or you can talk about uh, a style of uh, of whatever, mathematics, or or a style of painting, or something like that that comes from from different places. Um, I was uh, was recently talking to someone in. Um, in, in Los Angeles who's an analytic philosopher and I've long maintained that there seems to be something tied between the language, this Anglo-Germanic style of language and analytic philosophy. There's probably a reason why it didn't come from the French or, or, uh, or the Italians or, or, or something like that. Um, and I started thinking about things like sense of humor and plays on words and puns. And, and I thought, Again, from my personal experience, there does seem to be a difference in, 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 the, in terms of the, the jokes or the humor or the plays on words that can be done, certainly between English and French. They're both very playful, but they play in somewhat different ways. Um, can you give me some, first of all, is that, in your experience, completely crazy? And then assuming it's not completely crazy... What can you say about American Sign Language and the sense of humor and, 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 and puns and, and the, the blurring of the language, poetry perhaps because of, of course if, uh, of your, your complete fluency in English. You can look at these things and compare. Uh, does that make any sense where, where I'm going with this? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Um, yes. Um, there's a slightly different style of, of humor when I'm signing. One of the funniest things you can do is to adopt um, the mannerism of a different person signing. Mm-hmm. It's like changing your voice or mimicking someone. You know, we can do we can we can do somebody very familiar. Uh, let's say a very well-known deaf person. We can mimic that person, and people say, "I know who you are." <laughs> um, it's just like you can do it, somebody can mimic Robert De Niro or um, John Wayne or somebody like that. We can do that. But very often, um, um, Jimmy Fallon does this all the time. He has this, this um, sulky teenager kind of voice he gets into. And people know exactly the style or the type of person he's talking about. You can do that in sign language. You can, you can mimic a hearing person. You can mimic a new signer. You can mimic um, a very conservative, um, um, hard-nosed kind of deaf person. You, you, you can, or you can, you can mimic some sort of flaky person. you can do that. You do that by by sh- sh- very subtly changing your movement and your body positioning, and you you can make people laugh doing that. So you, you can convey sarcasm, um, but I have, I have um, a very good friend that has this very unique way of, of being funny, and she does not out of the blue, when she doesn't, you, you can't help but laugh. But you know, when you sign, um, you have signs like death or home, or um, you sign on one side of the body, typically if you're right-handed, it's always the right. The right side. You're left-handed. It's going to be the left side. So what she does instead of doing death, is she goes on the opposite side, which is funny. I don't know. If it's not funny to you, but no. when she doesn't, <laughs> it's just like you're on the floor laughing. I can't tell you why it's funny, but that's that's really it's, interesting. It it's so clever, right? Um, it nobody doesn't. So when she doesn't, it's just Unique and clever and hilarious.
1: Right, but jokes. I mean, that's that's what's interesting because, of course, jokes from one language to another often don't travel right. well. That's 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 the whole. That's one of the cruxes of of, of this notion of, of of humor and language and culture. It's exactly that. It's the fact that I don't, I don't find that funny because I don't understand the entire framework. Right. I don't even have any reference to draw right. on. Right. You have to. You have to live the framework to write, write. So
2: yeah, you know, we tell then and, and that kind of thing. Um, I'm, I, I haven't spent a lot of time analyzing, you know, what would be a punchline and how would a punchline work, but some of the funniest things really for me is, is simply, f- for us, sometimes the punchline is to show the reaction of the other person. It's kind of like, Oh, um, duh, you know, that <laughs> kind of, I, you know, we should kind of down, down, the person goes, oh, I can't do it, I can't quite think of it right now, um, if I were signing, I probably look it. Um, the <laughs> so very often, you know, because I'm, I'm constantly traveling between different cultures, i I really like these things that are really crazy different, because it really, it really, it, it shows you, um, just sort of the wacky possibilities of, of language still coming back to. What happens if telling a joke is slightly different because you have you have a different apparatus that you have your bodies to use in a way that you don't you could use um, in spoken language. Um, so people think about universals, language universals. And sometimes that idea to find something so abstract, in order to find something that's common across all languages and across all languages spoken languages, you have to reach a level of abstraction that almost makes it no longer descriptive.
1: Right, it's sterile almost.
2: Exactly, you lose you lose what Im- imbo- the the embodiment part of it. That that's fascinating, but. What I and my colleagues are doing is, we think about language as um, you work with what you have and only what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, the speech has a little bit of gesture. You're not completely devoid of it. and the, and people are beginning to realize how multimodal language is. We tend to think, um, at audio, but you're going to do a video. Why? Because there are things that happen in exactly. video that, that are not in audio. You get a, a richer sense of, of what's being said. Do people understand this? And I think we're beginning to appreciate the signers are, and speakers, what they have in common is not necessarily some abstract, idea of language universals, but what they have in common is that all humans have the potential. They're all multimodal. They they choose different configurations of that multimodality and to build a language. That's really what we're working with. We want to see why sign languages end up with this particular configuration, why spoken languages end up with that. Um, there there's some spoken languages that um, use um, something called um or idiophone. It's a um, the languages that you click, the languages that use sound symbolism. We use a little bit of that, but in Japanese you use it more. So you begin to see all the differences across all languages is that they, they are, each of them, a subset of the entire possibility of, of communication in all human beings. So I think of sign languages as, um, as, as a, a, a transmitted across time and across generations in a culture and a community that completely infused with the need to communicate. It's this, this, this wonderful um, blend of, of creativity and structure. Structure that you have, conventionalization, creativity that so you can find even new ways of talking about the way that the world is changing.
1: This idea of modalities, different modalities, the fact that you can use uh, this notion of embodiment in, in, in far m- more descriptive and, and, and arguably impressive ways. Certainly uh, you have a wealth of opportunities using sign language that you don't have, using, uh, using a language like, like English or presumably most, most spoken languages. Um, brings me to this notion of the richness of the experiences that, that are conveyed, the uniqueness to some extent of the experiences that are conveyed through language. And that in turn brings us to this notion of deaf culture and this notion of the idea that uh, uh, one can imagine a world that pick a date doesn't matter 200 years from now where people say we, you know, we have to we have to move towards a time when uh, we can eliminate deafness from the world. And then as a consequence of that or as a likely consequence of that, we can uh, imagine that that language, that entire way of communicating ideas, that whole structure would be eliminated, which would be a, a, a horrible diminishment of the richness of not just the human experience, but of the ways of coming up with all sorts of different ideas and communicating and, and this sense of modality. Um, you've written quite a bit uh, about that. You wrote uh, this book, Inside uh, uh, Inside Deaf Culture, right, with with Tom Humphreys some 10, 10 years ago now, and um, So I'd like to talk a little bit about that, or I'd I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that. Um, and, And I also want to get a sense of how these ideas might have changed, both in your mind and in the public consciousness.
0: You're right. It could be a day when people don't sign anymore. I doubt it will be in my lifetime, but it could be. It could well happen. There are people who think... Why bother with signing? If you can speak, why bother? Just go ahead and use speech. We all will understand one another. And if that were true, we should not have war if people all spoke the same language. But that is another topic altogether. I think people don't understand diversity and they don't understand why we need diversity. If you think, You have signing and deaf is some form of suffering. Don't you want to be free of the obligation to need an interpreter, the need to look to communicate the difficulty that you experience, et cetera, et cetera? Why support small languages when you have English? It's perfectly good language. And I think that's the ongoing issue. It's the moral debate that continues in people who study languages, and languages are dying. I think uh, I've heard one every two weeks. Languages we've never heard of. If If I gave you a list of the names of languages that have died in the last year, I doubt you would recognize any of them. There are languages all over in any part of the world. The speakers, the last speaker's gone, and the language dies with that person. So, sign languages die as well. There are sign languages that deaf people have withered down to one or two people, and then when they pass, it's gone. So, American Sign Language, you know, we have about two, three hundred thousand people. But ASL users are in other parts of the world as well, although we don't document them. uh, Because of medicine or technology, you know, what is the future? I think it's time for my husband and I to write a new book, actually. It's been 10 years. But I think about things like that because they are different. People thought, oh, will you have an implant because that will cause sign language to disappear if you have a cochlear implant. And people think about the problems you know, of closing schools for deaf children and sign language will disappear. But I meet people who have never been to a deaf school. They grew up in public schools and uh, they don't meet a lot of other deaf people, and they decided, you know, I want to learn sign. And, you know, they're great signers, and they don't have to go to a deaf school. They don't have to learn sign as a child. There are hearing people who sign very well, many more hearing people who sign today than back then. We never thought that we would see so many. It's maybe double. The number of signers. If you count hearing people, so 200, 300,000 are the people who use ASL as a primary language. But if you add people who take ASL here in the United States or here at UCSD or in the colleges or universities around the United States, I just met someone at a conference who was learning ASL on YouTube. Just decided I want to learn ASL. He's Korean. He wanted to learn because... Uh, a lot of conferences will have ASL interpreters, and they might not have Korean sign language interpreters. So he went on YouTube and did some research and found uh, some signing. He's he's pretty good for a person who learned from the internet. Not bad at all, I must say. So people, you know, learn English from watching American TV. They learn it in school. They learn it in television. So maybe our whole. Um, methodologies for learning languages changing. I, I, I don't know.
1: Is, is there a, a related issue with um, American Sign Language versus other sign languages as there is to English versus other languages? Do you have people who are who are proponents of Korean Sign Language or French Sign Language who say, these bloody Americans, Yeah, you know, they're, they're Yes,
0: definitely. <laughs> yes, uh, in Africa, that's another thing. You mentioned something about how languages are different. Uh, A deaf man, uh, Andrew Foster, uh, was a missionary. He decided, he's American, African American, he decided to go to Africa and set up deaf schools. I don't know how many deaf schools, but he set up many in Africa. And at the time he was, I think that was 1960s and 70s, he thought, you know, we should encourage using ASL. It's a good language, Uh, you know, we've got English and ASL, but people didn't understand the impact and allowing people, you know, the goodness of allowing people and richness of allowing them to build their own. So a lot parts of Africa learn and use ASL. So to look at African signers, I don't actually understand them. If they come up and talk to me, I can, I, it, it's different. It's, uh, it's a different dialect of ASL, but they sign ASL. And they said, it's great to know ASL because now I can go to conferences around the world. My country can't afford a sign language interpreter. So I go to other conferences and U.S. has money to send their interpreters there. So I watch an ASL interpreter and I understand I have no problem. I use my sign language at home, but I'm glad I know ASL too. So there's that and it's, you know, the economic value, you know, the richer language. Um, has access, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can know more than one language. You can know two, three, four is perfectly fine.
1: So two follow-up questions. First is, uh, uh, I don't know what this is called. I'm not a linguist, so you'll have to tell me. But uh, Mala just said, you know. So when one speaks, one says things like, like, or you know, or something like that. Do you actually do that when you're signing? Do you Do you have those... Whatever they're called, uh, those pause things <laughs> that one puts in when one is actually signing? Are there physical things Yes, that one does? yes,
0: I'll show. Uh, things like uh, this. <laughs> or, uh, or um, yes, there was something. That's when she speaks up <laughs> and knows they have fillers, as we call them. You don't want someone looking away during silence. So you want to keep the floor. And people keep looking if you continue to speak, and that's the principle of holding the floor. Interesting.
1: Um, and and you mentioned in passing this idea of, uh, I think you used the word uh, the adjective richer. So I can imagine uh, maybe in terms of vocabulary. So I can imagine that in sign languages, there would be one language. Uh, maybe it's American Sign Language because people uh, it seems to be a very very prevalent and very popular, and it will have developed that have a greater vocabulary or richer vocabulary or or, or, or what have you? Um, is it the case that one can look objectively at some of these different sign languages and say some have a, at some level a greater power of expressiveness by whatever metrics you want to use, just as some people will say English is a much larger vocabulary. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you can't say things in other languages. Okay, let me just... Start that all over again. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, it's very risky. It's very risky to go down that line. Okay.
1: During the little break, in fact, that we had, we were talking about um, this notion of different people signing in different ways—masculine, feminine signing, <laughs> the different styles—which, uh, of course, upon reflection, made sense to me. But I, again, I hadn't thought of this notion of 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 people expressing themselves in a in one typical way or, or another. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because that's a fascinating angle.
3: You mean like a female and masculine type classifications for those types of signs or different parts of what is like in different parts of the United States
1: Well, like with the, the, in our culture? So the specific example that we were using was uh, we were talking about fast, right? And, and then, uh, and, and you said, if, if memory serves, Um, that you thought this was a particular masculine way of of doing it. This is a typically male way of signing as opposed to a female way of signing, which I had never even registered in my consciousness that there would be such a a distinction.
3: You know, if you hear someone say something, oh, that sounds like a Southern California type of way of talking. (laughs) And you, you envision an image of a person so when you think about the signing for fast, I tend to think, or uh, I, I imagine a type of person who would who might use that sign fast in this way, different from a person who would use the different hand shape for the other way to sign fast. The whole hand sign fast is a little bit heavier. It seems older, maybe. Um, yeah. Okay it's uh, it's one word it's it's a way of pronunciation for the sign and it kind of gives you an image of what that person or the people or the place that might use that sign and it just happens naturally with languages
1: but can you generalize and say that um, there's a macho way of doing things that way, that 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 uh, that well that's a, that's a typically male testosterone riddled way of signing as opposed to something sure, that's sure, not Sure, that sure, but
3: way. it's really hard to separate the body from that. Right? So, a uh, very masculine body, you, know, you think of it in that way, it affects it has that effect on that how they use their space between their arms, and their hands and how right. they hold their body and the tempo of their movement. Um, the whole thing altogether feels so You know, actually there's an interesting thing about language that you tend to recognize things that are stigmatized. In speech you go, oh yeah, you recognize oh, that's some, you know, that's like a dizzy person. You recognize that's something the way they say or that's a standard for that kind where there are, you know, you recognize something about it. But we all have dialects, right? We all have variations. There are ones that are stigmatized, and you tend to talk about those more, and you recognize them more often, or you mark them or label them more often, you refer to them. But all of us have variations in some particular way.
1: I I want to get back to this idea of what's happening in one's mind when one is using a language. And a classic example uh, that most people have experienced, if they find themselves in an immersion experience where they're learning a new language is there's a certain time where they develop a facility and a familiarity with the language. And a, a one threshold is they begin to dream in this in this language. And they, they sense that they are actually, uh, they're actually, they're dreaming in that language. Um, is there something analogous that happens with sign language? Do you, does it even, could you say you sure. dream, dream in this and that when people are learning ASL or, or what have you, some other sign language, they start to dream in that language at some point?
2: Sure, sure.
3: Sometimes I dream in sign language. Sometimes I dream I'm speaking English. Sometimes I drink, dream I'm speaking Spanish or French or something else. Or sometimes I'm um, moving and I can't quite or seem to express. You know that feeling yeah. of being stuck in mud you know, and you can't seem to get out of it? It's it all it all those. I've had all those types of experiences. But often I don't remember exactly. I just wake up and I, you know, want to write it down, but that doesn't always happen. Right.
1: And and something else that uh, uh, somebody else brought up, which seems interesting, is um, the nature of I- impediments. Uh, either people who have um, some form of uh, speech impediment, but uh, but but often there are just phrases that are difficult to say, tongue twisters, this sort of thing. Are there signs that are that are just hard to do and some people really struggle with them and that are analogous in some way to to that?
3: Yeah, there are two different things that you're talking about. One is um, maybe uh, the language uh, language difficulties, maybe stuttering or uh, language delays or some kind of specific, what is called a specific language impairment we're finding out more more of those in sign languages. I think now we do have the tools to know what it would look like to have. Um, you know, there are children, or there are deaf children who sign, and the teacher and the parents are looking at. It, they're like, there's something going on here. There's something about this child signing that seems maybe impaired in some way. Before we didn't have the tools to look at it, but now we're People are doing this kind of research and this kind of work, and people are describing cases of children who have a difficult time using their space
1: Mm.
3: while signing. It seems like such a natural thing to do, but recently there was a publication, um, David Quinto Pozo from the University of Texas recently published a case where a child who had a difficult time with using this space and setting up things in space to convey his idea, and And that is sign language to use space. And he seemed to have a difficulty with that. So now the next step is to try and figure out well, what kind of difficulty is it exactly? And what does it say about how the brain works? That kind of thing. And then there is another, uh, a natural type of uh, uh, like, you know, sign twisting or tongue twisting, tongue twisters, or it's the slip of the hand rather than a slip of the tongue. So the slip of the hand would be something. I've done it myself, and I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, There is published work in that area as well. Um, Cook To cook, for example. This is a sign for cooking. Maybe you have the wrong hand shape. Maybe you swap out one hand shape for another because you're you're thinking of a fork, but you want to say cook, and then you use the hand shape for fork, but you're signing cook. So I need a fork to do some cooking, so I end up saying I need a fork for a for cooking
1: yeah I don't know I don't know if that's a good example something like that (laughs) (laughs) um so you're mentioning studies and what's going on in the brain and and so I have a I guess a statement and then a question I was talking to uh Ellen Bialystok who is a psychologist who studies uh the effects of bilingualism in the brain and one of the things that some of her research has led to is that the the um, she has looked at fMRI studies of uh, uh, what's happening in the brain. Um,
3: oh, I were you was talking helping to her. I'm sorry, okay. I was helping her spell. I was helping the interpreter spell the the person's last name that you had okay. just mentioned. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> uh, because you know that's not allowed to, to talk to each other when 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 I'm in when I'm in the room here. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, my understanding is that her work is such that uh, that she sees uh, I don't know if it's exactly the same, but effectively the, the, the same uh, profiles and signatures in terms of what she's looking for neurophysiologically uh, of of bilingual people. Uh, be it English and French, or Spanish and Russian, or 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 Chinese and sign language, or, or what have you. That, that sign language is fundamentally equivalent in, in in terms of her particular studies. So that struck me as 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 quite interesting and certainly um, really solid uh, empirical evidence for the idea of sign language as fundamentally equivalent, structurally equivalent to other languages. That that, uh, that that we're aware of, and I'm, I'm wondering what sort of other types of work you might be familiar with in terms of what's happening neurophysiologically, looking at, at fMRI studies of people with sign language. Is that a booming field right now, and where, where are we with all of that?
2: It is. There, there's a lot of people working with fMRI, with MEG, with... Um ERP, um, Studies with Signers. It's not work that I do, so I don't feel, um, I can talk about it at length, but um, the explosion of work on sign language structure, on um, small sign languages, as well as national, larger sign languages, FMRI work. Um, There's work on sign language acquisition in young children um, they're just about, and now I, I was just talking about um, language impairment, dining um, children, both deaf and hearing, who seem to display something that seems not quite um, typical, and and having having the ability and the tools to go in and describe exactly what the impairment is, and then to be able to link it to um, um, particular parts of the brain and, and think which which parts are related to comprehension, to production. The um diamangu is it's both about the body, but it's also about using the space in front of the body. So you you can you can make a map if I were describing how to get someplace, how to travel, I, I would make a, uh, I, I would I would just sketch out in front of me you can do it on here, you can do it like vertical. There are different ways of doing it. So if you're if you're kind of it's kind of mapping out, the question is whether because it's language but it's also visual spatial, which is in the right hemisphere, but language is in the left. So there are a lot of studies about which aspect of space is tied to the language, which aspect is maybe more general, generally visual, spatial. And, and, and the thing with sign language is to flip in and out. Uh, I think we're beginning to realize that signers also gesture. So I, I, I talked previously about co- co-speech gesture. We have co-sign gesture. Hmm. A lot of people think, and this is some of the work that my colleagues and I are doing, a lot of people think well if you have sign language what do you need gesture for that gesture simply withered up and 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 died it, it was replaced by sign language but we're finding now that a sign of gesture and we can show it from um some studies that we've done with young signing children doing um um, task where they, they have to describe uh, or talk about um, math, like, like uh, a math problem on a board. This is work we're doing with Susan Golden Meadow, who's one of the leading um, scientists in the area of, of gesture, and she had done this work with hearing children. And we did the exact same experiment with deaf children to show that they were using gesture in the same way that young children were. Hmm. So, speech and sign language, it, the modality is different, but the configuration is it, um, about conveying categorical information. Gesture is about conveying something that's more continuous. Something that's more um, analogic. And language is purposely not analogic, it's more categorical. So sometimes, if you want to show uh, a particular kind of distance, signers will use gestures to show something that's bigger than or smaller than. So the signs are big and small. But small, I'm not really showing you how small. Big, I'm not showing you how big. But if I wanted to show you how small, I might do something like this or this. If I wanted to show you how big, I might do something like this. So you, that's why we think of, of language use and are multimodal. They have rich resources, but you end up using just a subset of that. So some, like I said, some languages have click. some have whistle. some have use a lot more gesture in, in the Mediterranean area, um, um, in Arab in countries, in, in southern, um, southern Europe, you use a lot more than more gesture than in Northern Europe. So a, a lot of that is shaped by, by culture, by community. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of these things people thought were universal, we're beginning to really understand how to describe diversity.
1: So so there's the cultural aspect of this, which I certainly get. I mean, anybody who's been to Italy knows that there's a lot of right, gesturing of that goes on <laughs> there. Right. Um, and there's a lot more than goes on in Iceland, I would guess, although I've never been to Iceland, so okay. I probably shouldn't say. Um, I haven't either. But, <laughs> but it, there's something else that, that I, th- I think that you're saying, so correct me if, if I'm wrong, but what it seems like you're saying is you're looking at... at not just these modalities, but also functionalities. So if I'm saying gesture adds Line. this and, and, and normal language, whatever Line. that means, is, is that. And so you can start developing some abstract archetype, archetypes really in, in terms, of or, or abstract modalities in terms of what's being conveyed and what tools you need to convey what, what sorts of things, be it for emphasis Line. or for or whatever. Is, is, that, is that kind of the way, the yes. way it's
2: going? Right. I think
1: you tried to
2: ask me, only I may have not gotten to it, but you wanted to know if languages varied in efficiency, functionality.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and I said, you know, that was kind of risky. I, uh, there's this, um, this idea that all languages are equally complex. There are no languages that are simple. i right. are no languages that are more complex. That all languages do what they need to do. So, um, some some languages have nine or 10 genders. Uh, they tend to be smaller languages, and they're very detailed about categorizing the world. English has no genders. You wouldn't say it was less complex. You would say that, in, in a way, um, some people have, have said that, um, English is ideal as at the, a at the world language because, because, it does not have multiple genders, it does not have the complexity of, of verb agreement that you find in, in other languages. Um, the small languages tend to have, actually they're, they can be quite complex because they're, they're very detailed about naming, very detailed about subtypes, Uh, They have names for lots of different things. In English, we don't have a name for things that we don't know, how to identify different types of things. So that that idea that once you start trying to develop a metric, the metric is always specific to the purpose.
1: But here's my problem with some of this, uh, as a complete non-specialist. let me set it up by, by just giving a bit of an, uh, of an anecdote to something which I'm suspecting you'll be familiar with based upon your expertise and, uh, and where you find yourself. So I was talking to one of your colleagues uh, who, who's in the psychology department, but he studies language and the use of language, Victor Ferreira. Um, and, yeah. and so we had a discussion about uh, some of his research And the claims that he had in his research, using this word "that" as a a, as an indicator, um, and and the his thesis the word that the word that and indicating something, yeah, right. So his thesis was based upon his research that one might think that in uh, normal communication, when I am having when I'm speaking to to someone, I am preoccupied with uh, how they might understand that. Uh, the, the truth is that I'm really not doing that because, for efficiency purposes, what I'm really doing is just finding a way of saying my thing rather than worrying about whether they will understand it. So, a- anyway, the, the, what 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 his I- ideas are based on is, I think, this notion of efficiency. And so, there's a sense of how can you convey this in an efficient way, and how can you move forwards. And there 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 is there is a sense of, uh, or at least there are aspects, I think, of uh, of this notion that you brought up of the potential egalitarianism or the real egalitarianism of different involving different languages. They're, they're all just means to an end and so forth. Um, my problem, which I promised you that I would get to, is that it, it's not all about efficiency for me. So uh, just using one language, namely English, I find that often when I slow down and when I use an effortful way of thinking, so that I don't just run off at the mouth, but I take a little bit of time to search for my words and think about the right way to express myself and think about the subtleties involved in language, I do a better job, in my view, of, of actually communicating. And this um, and to me at some level that's the most significant thing so i realize sociologically people are talking they're not doing all of that and so you can measure how languages evolve and whether it's efficient and you're conveying hey there's a hunter over here we better get out of the way and you know all that kind of stuff but when i'm looking at the higher level nature of language as a means of communicating advanced sophisticated thoughts or when i'm using it playing with the language or humor or or poetry or writing in a in a in a very elevated fashion so that i can uh, subtly and, and effectively and cleverly perhaps convey a sentiment or, or a meaning then I'm doing something quite different um, which is all to say that it's not entirely obvious to me that any language will be best suited to be able to do that that I might be able to make distinctions. Maybe not. I'm, not, I'm not making distinctions between people, I'm not making cultural distinctions, but at least it's logically possible for me to say, no, this, this language is a little bit better suited towards this particular end than that language for whatever reason, historically or otherwise. You see where I'm, what, what I'm muddling around with? This has nothing to do with sign language in particular. You, you mean
2: that this language is better suited for this particular island culture?
1: Well, Is that what you mean? Not necessarily. I mean, it might be for something, it depends on how you define island. So so here I'm putting myself out there again. Let me, let me talk about this business of analytic philosophy, say, right, or or, or, or mathematics. It, it, it might be the case that for whatever reason, historical reason, there are languages that have a particular richness in a certain area which are best to convey which are, 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 have the tools to convey some particular ideas in a, in a, in a more efficient, in a, in a richer way than another language would. Which isn't to say that those particular people who speak that language are in any way incapacitated or anything like that. It's just a... a uh,
2: Why, well, you, might, you might say maybe German is better for certain types of philosophy. One might, or worse. Right, but what are you going to do? You're going to go learn German.
1: Well, there's a practical aspect, and then there's a there's an abstract theoretical point. So I'm talking more on the theoretical level of could it be that some languages naturally give us the tools to be able to achieve some ends in a way which can be distinguished from other languages? That's that's all I'm. That's all I'm asking. I
2: think, though, so. I think people do. People do recognize. I mean, that that's called diversity. I mean, people do recognize um, different languages, code, or or offer different um, possibility that maybe other languages don't. But then, it's just the practical matter sure. too. You
1: sure?
2: Right. Even if you know we could find the best language for for something. It, but then there's the very practical problem of how are you gonna get access to it? How how can you learn it well enough to to actually take full advantage of it that so you might decide that sign language is great for certain types of poetry. But then there's the practical matter of knowing it well enough to be able to create that kind of poetry. Right. So you know there there's um it's just that languages are both very easy and very hard. When I started working um, with this village sign language, there are 3,000 people living in this village, Badwins. And about 100, you know, they don't really have a sense. that Whenever we go in and ask them, how many deaf people do you have? They'll say, we don't know. Because who's counting? Um, who's counting are the schools and uh, the bureaucrats The, you know, the the nation and its census um, taking need, they're who's counting. But in a community, you often go in and you say, how many deaf people do you have? That's the kind of question a school principal wants to know so they know how how big to build the school. But the community doesn't care how many there are. So somewhere between 100, 125 deaf people living in the village, and I think maybe five times that many who sign the language very well. So I figured this is a new language. So I'm coming in for the first time, it should be easy. It's hard, it's very hard. It's harder than a European sign language. Um, Well, first the iconography is different. So if I go to Europe, there's this sort of Western Europe, um, US type of iconography, which is, the things that you think about are gonna be in the head. But, you know, in Japan, the sign for um, indivision is here at the torso, mm. not the head. Because, I, you know, for some people, certain types of emotions are in the liver, not in the brain. Mm-hmm. So you have to know the iconography of the culture, and it affects the gesture and affects the sign language. So I was in a place where this is how you mock rather than this. So I was looking for certain things that actually part of it was the iconography and part of it is they never meet strangers. Strangers never use their sign language. Right. So they all fixed. know each other that, that's the thing that's the thing about small languages is you different from English. English you I've never met you before I met you once. Hmm. But we're here in a room talking among strangers and we understand each other because Um, we're very clear to name things, we're very clear to use complete sentences and all of these things that are very referential. But when you're in a very small community, you don't need to be as referential. You can point, and everybody knows what you're pointing to. You don't need to name. Hmm. So the sign for Gaza in this particular Bedouin village is, which means, I think, Palestinian that way. And then Lebanon is this or our more something, uh, West Bank, for example, is Palestinian that way. So you have to know where you are to know whether they're pointing to Gaza <laughs> or to, um, to Amala. So, uh, so they didn't have names for the different uh, a lot of the cities. They should simply, um, they had one sign about some characteristic of the people living there and then the direction. So it, it was geocentric. I was lost because I didn't know, didn't know where anymore. they were pointing <laughs> even if I did I didn't know what the relevant was and there was a lot of shared knowledge so I thought this is crazy this language is new it, it doesn't have a whole lot of structure and I, I'm I can't even get past the first sentence <laughs> um, now I'm much better in the language so it really taught me a lot about big languages and small languages they really are People, lingu- uh, linguists have noticed this, that you know, uh, they have the extraordinarily complex grammatical structures, and small languages you would think larger ones do, but they're actually quite simple hmm. because so many people are using them. They, in, in a sense, they lose, they lose um, the sharp edges so, um. that, so that more people can be using it around the world.
1: Interesting. Um, I could go on for a very long time, but I promised you that we would, uh, we would cut short right, before we all wow. die, die of heat exhaustion. Um, <laughs> before I conclude, I just wanted to ask you if there's anything that you would like to add that uh, we haven't touched on or that you uh, feel we should definitely chat about a little bit more.
2: Wow, I think we've covered, we've covered so much. I don't know how long this has been, but we've covered a lot. Um, it's been an interesting conversation. I'm sure I'll think of something at midnight tonight, but well, not you, right you, now. You
1: know, you know what my email address is. So, uh, so do, please, please, please let me know. Anyway, Carol, this was great. So, Thank you very, very much. Nice to meet was... you too. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset. This conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations about Language and Culture, along with separate discussions with David Bellos, Michael Berry, Nick Coldry, and Dennis McQuayle. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.